Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me as always, a man that's driving a four-wheeler on the highway through the danger zone. He is the captain. That's because I got a honky-tonk, but donkey donk It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling your mother. This week we are featuring Bennington from Night Shift Brewing in Massachusetts, garage grade four and a quarter bottle caps. Listen up because this beer has a lot going on. Bennington is an oatmeal stout brewed with Dutch processed cocoa and maple syrup. This is a beautiful montage of big flavors and Bennington was brought to us by all of you out there. But specifically, we have first up a big, big thank you to Robbie and Steph in Clinton, Massachusetts. And a big... We Like Your Jib goes out to Junior in Toledo, Ohio. Next up, all the way in Sweden, a cheers to Ellen. And a big cheers, mates, to Lauren E. in D.C. Next up, we have Hannah from Oklahoma. And last but not least, we have Connery from Parts Mispronounced, Worcester, Massachusetts. Thanks, everybody, for helping us out with this week's beer run. If you want to help us out with next week's, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on that little donate button. Do you say Oklahoma? Oklahoma. Oklahoma, don't play that. Yeah. And that is enough of the business. All right, everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. The definition of the murder gene is that it is a DNA genetic variant that some scientists propose predisposes an individual to berserk violence. This is not a scientific or forensic expert term per se, but is a term made popular by the media to refer to a particular variant of the monoamine oxidase gene, which apparently predisposes an individual to disproportionate violence under any condition, 
that triggers the carrier of that gene sequence to violence. As referred to in the death penalty case of Mobley v. the state of Georgia, the murder gene is, quote, a possible genetic basis for violent and impulsive behavior in certain individuals, end quote. It is also known as the rage gene, or even more commonly, the warrior gene, because of the theory that persons with this gene would likely have been the most efficient berserk warriors on a field of battle. The murder gene, as the theory goes, suggests that behavior and activities from infancy into childhood and through adulthood were not the products of free will as society defines this term because the individual lacked the ability to make non-impulsive, considered choices about his or her life's path. Again, this is not a scientific nor forensic term per se, but it is certainly worth exploring. It's the age-old question of nature or nurture. This week, we discuss a case that begs the question, are some people born to kill? Ward Weaver III was born April 6, 1963 in Humboldt County, California. His father was the junior, Ward Weaver Jr., and his mother's name is Trish Weaver. When Ward was about four years old, his father left his mother and abandoned the family altogether. A short time after he left, Trish Weaver met another man, and later the two got married. The man's name, Bob Boudreau. So after Ward Weaver... The third's mother remarried. This is when the family relocated, moving up to Portland, Oregon. Unfortunately, it seems like there was a lot of abuse going on in that household. Bob Boudreau is described as an abusive alcoholic. I can't say for certain whom in the house Bob was abusing. Could be his wife, a child, or everyone. But at some point during Ward Weaver's teenage years, he started abusing one or more of the other children in the house. Okay, there's a little brief history on Ward Weaver III's childhood. Now, we need to fast forward to February 1981 and go back to California for this next portion of this week's case. A young recently engaged couple, this is 18-year-old Robert Radford and his fiancée, 23-year-old Barbara Lavoie. These two are driving from Robert's parents' house. They stayed there for two weeks visiting. They are driving to an Air Force base near Las Vegas. See, young Robert is one of the good guys. He is going into the armed forces, and according to his mother, the young couple laid out their future plans regarding their marriage. Robert wanted a long career in the Air Force, and the two planned to have a bunch of kids. But before they got to the Air Force base, in fact, they were still in California, just west of the Mojave Desert, their vehicle breaks down. Unfortunately for them, a semi-truck slowed down to talk to the young couple. Less than two days later, Robert Radford's body was found along a desert highway. According to the papers, Robert was hit in the back of the head several times, possibly with an axe or hatchet. And Barbara was missing, and authorities feared she had been abducted. Later that same year, Ward Weaver Jr., a long-haul truck driver who spent a lot of time away from his family, was arrested. Eventually, he was convicted and sentenced to 42 years in prison. This is because one night, Ward Weaver Jr. picked up two runaways in his truck. He wanted very little to do with the 18-year-old man, 
So he arranged for a friend to shoot the man. And Ward Weaver Jr. repeatedly raped the 15-year-old girl before letting her go. It was when Ward Weaver Jr. was in prison for the attack on the runaways that he confided in a cellmate that he had killed another couple. Weaver Jr.'s cellmate told authorities. And when police showed up at the prison to ask Weaver Jr. about the crime, Weaver Jr. had only one request. I need to talk to my mother, he said. They let him make a phone call and then he talked to them and he laid it all out. Weaver Jr. said he beat 18-year-old Robert Radford to death with a pipe, hitting him from behind. Then Weaver Jr. kidnapped and attempted to rape the woman. When he tried to gag her, she bit off the tip of his thumb. Well, too bad she didn't bite off the tip of your dick. Well, he said that he went home and he was quite freaked out that night. He told his family he had been in a bar fight Mm -hmm. and that a man had bitten off the tip of his thumb. Weaver Jr. was so unnerved by the incident that he did not let his children attend school the following day. Now, according to court records, he buried the girl's body in three places before moving her remains to a hole that his son, unaware of what the hole was for, helped him dig behind his rented house in California. Right. This is where Weaver Jr.'s second wife and their young children lived. Weaver Jr.'s son, Rodney, remembers packing the dirt. Later, his father sealed the grave with concrete and built a deck on top of it. On the afternoon of July 26, 1982, two detectives showed up at the two-story house and wanted to speak to Rodney about the holes he helped dig. They brought in a backhoe and cracked the concrete in two chunks. From his bedroom on the second floor, he watched as they lifted up one of the pieces. And there she was, said Rodney. Ward Weaver Jr. was tried for the double homicides and received two death sentences. Yeah, one evil dude. It turned out later that Ward Weaver Jr.'s truck routes matched up with 26 unsolved hitchhiker homicides. Now, to be clear, Weaver Jr. has never been charged in any of those cases, nor do we know if he's tied to any of those for certain. Right. Meanwhile, while all of this was happening in California with Ward Weaver Jr., back in Oregon in 1981, his son, Ward Weaver III, now this would be right around the time Ward Weaver III was turning 18 years of age, a teenage relative reported that Ward had repeatedly raped and beat her. Police did investigate these allegations, but Multnomah County prosecutors decided not to pursue charges. Some sources say this is because Ward Weaver enlisted in the Navy and was leaving Portland soon. I think it was a bit more complicated than just simply that, Captain. Yeah, I hope I hope so. Well, it, Oh, well, th- just because you're out here raping and beating women, oh, once you sign up for the Navy, it's all good. Well, I, again, I don't think it was just that simple. It looks like... They, meaning the authorities, they were having trouble bringing the charges forward. Right. And I'm sure Weaver leaving likely didn't help to motivate the cause, let's say. Mm-hmm. So shortly after Weaver graduated from Marshall High School in Portland, he joined the U.S. Navy Reserve. But this was short-lived as he was discharged the following year on May 17th, 1982 for heavy drinking and dereliction of duty. Mm-hmm. During his tenure in the Navy, he met his future wife, Maria Stout, a native of the Philippines. I thought you were going to say douche canoeing of duty. (laughs) The couple moved in with Weaver's parents. This is his mother's side of the family. And Maria was soon pregnant. Five months into her pregnancy, she was physically assaulted by Weaver III and hospitalized. 
but she refused to press charges against her husband. Their son, Francis, was born in December of 1982. Let's flash forward, shall we, and introduce Ashley Marie Pond. Ashley was born on March 1st, 1989. Her mother, Lori Davis, was barely 16 at the time. For the first few years of Ashley's life, she lived with her mother and her mother's high school sweetheart, David Pond. Eventually, the two married, and Ashley viewed David as her father. Ashley was described as an easy child who could entertain herself and one who enjoyed attention and affection. She was well-behaved. But then about the age of 9 or 10, Lori Pond divorced David Pond. And this was a very big change for little Ashley. During the divorce, the couple fought about child support payments, so a paternity test was administered to determine if Ashley was indeed David Pond's biological daughter. To everyone's surprise, it was determined that she was not. You are not the father. Wesley Rutger was her real father. She began to visit her biological father, staying with him on the weekends. It was during this time that friends and family noticed Ashley was becoming angry and confrontational. She really did not want to spend time with her biological father, and she did not enjoy staying with her father. Right. It took some time, but eventually Ashley told her mother that Wesley Rutger, her biological father, had sexually abused her during her visits to his home. In January of 2001, Wesley Rutger was indicted on 40 counts of rape and sexual abuse. Later, in a bad plea deal, he was able to plead no contest to one of the counts and was released. During the following months, the police were called out to the Pond apartment for various reasons, including an allegation that Lori, Ashley's mother, was drunk and neglecting her children. By April 2001, Ashley Pond was spending a lot of time over at the house of a friend, Mallory Weaver, daughter of Ward Weaver III. In early spring, a report was made by Linda Verdon, Ashley's reading teacher at Gaffney Lane Elementary. This was, report was given to the principal, Chris Mills. She said that she saw Ward Weaver kiss Ashley on the lips. Regardless of this, Ashley seems to be finding some comfort at the Weaver home or at least enjoying spending time, a lot of time, with her friend. According to the Portland Tribune, Ashley spent almost the first half of 2001 with the Weaver family. Even joining Ward Weaver, Weaver's girlfriend, and Weaver's daughter Mallory on a two-week vacation to California in late June and early July of 2001. The calls to the police about disturbances at Ashley's mother's apartment continued over the next few months, and Ashley spent more and more time with the Weavers. Then in early August, so just about one month after Ashley went on vacation with the Weavers, Ashley very bravely confided in her reading teacher, Linda Verdon, that Ward Weaver had molested her. According to Ashley, she said Ward Weaver III was molesting her and Weaver used Ashley's biological father's pending rape trial as the threat to keep her quiet. So he threatened that he would testify against Ashley and her father's rape trial if she said what was going on. Right. We already mentioned that the plea deal, we already mentioned that plea deal, but see all these allegations by the young girl were not just clean and simple. They had their complexities, and the authorities did have some troubles getting all charges brought forth. To be clear, I'm not accusing this young girl of lying. In fact, my stance is let's hear her out 
and go round up these perverts and see if we can charge them with something. But one of the complexities is back in April of that year, Ashley also accused two other men of molesting her, but then later recanted those statements. So I think some can see how this could be perceived as a boy who cried wolf situation. But regardless of any of these other situations. Well, it's, it's a big difference between a boy crying wolf and a girl crying rape. Regardless of any of these other situations and the details of those, this little very brave girl told someone what was going on. Right. That Ward Weaver third was molesting her. That he was inappropriate with her. And she stood up and told an adult, a good adult at that. Once the accusations were made, Ashley stopped going to the Weaver's house. These accusations didn't come without problems for Ashley, who ultimately ended up being, well, what she described as feeling ostracized by Ward Weaver's daughter and friends of Weaver's daughter. Due to the sloppy handling of the paperwork by county officials regarding Ashley's accusations, Ward Weaver was never investigated and therefore he was never charged with sexually abusing Ashley at that time. Yeah, that's nonsense. All right, Captain. So here's where we are, right? We yeah. have we're discussing the Weaver family, basically. Mm -hmm. We have Ward Weaver Jr., who committed murders in California. Yeah. By this time, he's already locked up. He's facing death sentences. He's a real stinky pizza. That's right. He's got mm -hmm. two death sentences in the state of California. Mm-hmm. Then we have his son, Ward Weaver III. Now, keep in mind, Weaver Jr. left the third's mother in the family when Ward Weaver III was like four years old. Mm. So really, these two have no to little interaction with, with each other. But Ward Weaver III is now in Oregon, and he is being accused by his daughter's friend of molesting her. Right. And as we stated due to some kind of slip up in the paperwork, lazy work, you know, sloppy work, whatever you want to call it, that accusation is not really investigated, even though in my opinion, it's reported by a reputable, uh, it's a reputable report coming from her school. This was mm -hmm. her school stating this. Yeah. I understand that there's problems going on at her house at Ashley Pond's house with the police showing up with the situation with her mother. Right. But this little girl, regardless of, you know, I referenced a boy who cried wolf situation, the regardless of that, this girl can't catch a break. She's gone through some very tough times. She's had a shit bag for a biological father mm, who, stinky. who wasn't there. And then when she goes to visit him, he, I mean, he, he's accused and was charged with 40 counts of rape or molestation charges. Yeah. He's able to plea down to one count of that. And then we have these other accusations going on with Ward Weaver, the third, not investigated, but into the fall of 2001, things started to look up for Ashley. Who's obviously been through so much in her short life. Life seemed to settle down. Ashley's grades were improving and her family and home life was improving as well. And the bright side of Ashley's personality was returning. Unfortunately, as Christmas approached, sources say Ashley and Ward Weaver's daughter, Mallory, the two girls who were once friends, they were both on the dance team together. They partially renewed their friendship. Now on to the day in question, Captain. Right. 
According to the Portland Tribune, on January 9, 2002, Lori Pond, Ashley's mother, says Ashley got up just like any other day. Ashley got ready for school, and Lori heard Ashley say goodbye. This was around 8.15 a.m. This was when she was heading out to catch her school bus. Ashley never reported to school that day. In fact, her friends would later say Ashley never got on the bus and never arrived at the bus stop. The report that went out on January 9th, 2002, this was a Wednesday, in Oregon City, Oregon, Ashley Pond, age 12, disappeared on her way to meet the school bus. It was just after 8 a.m., and Ashley was running late. The bus stop was just 10 minutes from the New Well Creek Village Apartments where Ashley lived with her mother. Again, Ashley Pond never got on the bus, never made it to her middle school that day. Because they had no eyewitnesses, authorities were looking into the possibility that she never made it out very far from the apartment complex itself where she lived. Neither her mother nor most of her friends believed she had run away. The local authorities jumped on this right away, but the problem they very quickly ran into, no one saw anything out of the ordinary. No one saw Ashley get into a vehicle. No one saw her in any type of struggle. No one reported hearing any screams. Right. You know, it was as if she had just simply vanished. The local police called in the FBI, but again, there simply was just no clues that surfaced as to the whereabouts of the missing girl. Ashley was popular at school and enjoyed being on the swim team and dance team. Her, and her friends and her classmates, well, it was like a mixed bag as for feelings about Ashley having gone missing. Most of the kids were saddened and likely afraid regarding her disappearance, but a few of her friends thought Ashley may have run off. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, that's fair. I mean, think of the crap that this kid has gone through, you know, and basically the three year time period of her parents divorcing and, and all that. I mean, that's, it's a, it's a horrible three years for her. One of Ashley Pond's friends, Miranda Gladys said when Ashley didn't show up at the bus stop for school, first Miranda was scared. And then she said she got mad. Miranda figured Ashley probably ran away. And she was upset that Miranda took off and then didn't even bother to call anybody and at least say that she was fine. Miranda felt that Ashley left everybody worrying for nothing. Miranda and her mother, Michelle Duffy, lived just a few apartments down from Ashley Pond. The school organized a benefit to raise money for a reward for Ashley's disappearance. Maybe a reward could help generate a tip, a much-needed lead in a case that had no clues. Featured at the benefit would be the dance team that both Ashley and Miranda belonged to. Miranda choreographed a solo routine as a special way of remembering her friend. Miranda's mother, Michelle, later said, Miranda started realizing that even if Ashley did run away, she wasn't coming back anytime soon. The dance benefit was scheduled for March 23, 2002 at the Oregon City High School. But Miranda would not be in it. Because on Friday, March 8th, just two months after Ashley disappeared, 13-year-old Miranda Gladys got up just like any other day. She got ready for school. Miranda's mother, Michelle Duffy, left for work within 30 minutes before Miranda would typically leave for school. Each weekday morning, Miranda and some other kids would catch the school bus at the bus stop about a 10-minute walk from the apartment complex at the top of the hill. But later that day, Michelle learned that Miranda did not go to school. 
and she immediately called the police. Miranda, just like Ashley, didn't show up at the bus stop that morning that she went missing. Police believe she vanished around 8 a.m. while on her way to the bus stop at the top of the hill. And the paper said she disappeared from the Newell Creek Village Apartments. So here we have both 12-year-old Ashley Pond and 13-year-old Miranda Gladys, two girls who were good friends that went to the same school and lived in the same apartment complex, both disappeared before school. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. 
All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, cheers, mates. This is a lot to unpack, but let's try to do this slowly. Yes. Well, it doesn't help that two of the individuals that we've... I'm sipping on my beer. Hold on. Disgusting. <laughs> That's not just how I drink it like it. a normal person. But it doesn't help, Captain, that the <sighs> two two of the individuals that we're discussing have the same name: Ward Weaver Jr., yeah. Ward Weaver the Third. We don't need to talk about Junior right now, right? So th- the third in his town, we have this girl, Ashley. Ashley. She goes missing, but before she goes missing, she says, "Hey, Ward Weaver the Third. He is." molesting me mm-hmm. yeah she's over at his house all the time 
very good friends, best friends with his daughter, Mallory. Mm-hmm. And he, she eventually accuses him of molesting her. Now we also have the reading teacher who says before these molestation allegations ever come up, right? The reading teacher says, Hey, on one occasion, I witnessed this grown man, Ward Weaver, the third kiss this 12 year old girl on the lips. Mm-hmm. So very likely a, which is, you know, which is weird, but also if you saw, if you saw a grown man kiss like a three year old, wouldn't be so weird. You know, for me though, I would think if I just like was out in public randomly and saw something like that, I would just assume it was like the, the kid's father. Right. right? Um, but you know, this reading teacher knows different because she knows uh, his daughter as well. Right. So that's strange. And then they don't listen to her and they basically don't investigate these allegations at all. And then her friend, Ashley's friend goes missing as well. And now they're coming back to Ward Weaver, the third and saying, Hey, you're a suspect for this Mm -hmm. because there were allegations against you. Right. But this guy, he thinks he's a rock star now Mm -hmm. because people are in they're interviewing him and he's saying, oh, come on in my house, sit down. Let's talk about this. Yeah. And, and a lot of this occurs after the second girl, Miranda goes missing. And what's so strange is that you have two girls that have disappeared and it's the, the circumstances of such are so similar, right? You know, uh, both of them were on their way apparently to the bus stop and they never arrive at the bus stop. Which, but also in my mind, that makes it a little more suspicious that you would think that a parent of somebody at their school would know the bus system roughly when kids were waiting for the bus Mm -hmm. and, or you got a predator in the area and that's their means of opportunity. Mm -hmm. So it's, but I'm leaning more towards maybe a parent of somebody at the school. Well, and some in the community would share that same thought. But the thing we have to keep in mind here regarding the bus stop itself, mm-hmm. it's not like it's not like either of these girls were going to show up at the bus stop and be the only one waiting for the school bus. Mm-hmm. We have other kids their same ages that go to the same school, ride the same bus, and these kids, when questioned, are saying, we never saw either girl the day that they went missing. Right. Once again, when we have Miranda who goes missing under the similar circumstances, investigators jump on it immediately, but they come up empty there. Again, there's no leads to follow. The investigators then started to look at the possibility that the person that abducted the girls was possibly someone that knew them and whoever it was seemed to be targeting possibly the same type of victim. Ashley and Miranda were close in age, involved in similar activities, and even according to some looked very similar to each other. And, and the fact that there is no eyewitnesses and there's no, there's nobody coming forward here saying that they heard a girl scream or anything that would lead me to believe that as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and you and I know that a lot of times what investigators are looking for when there is a possible stranger abduction or any type of child abduction, mm-hmm. they want a car. They want a, a vehicle description of of what to be looking for or a van yeah and here we have no vehicle description we don't have any eyewitnesses saying they saw anything at all 
But if our band the van campaign keeps going as well as it's going, they won't be looking for vans anymore. That's right. Because they'll be off the streets. Well, on the other side of the coin here, Captain, we have some people in the community who wondered if perhaps the two girls ran away together. Now, I know that they went missing about two months apart, but some of the people were wondering, could Ashley have contacted Miranda, told her where she was, and persuaded her to join her? They were friends. Right. That's a possibility. But again, as a 12-year-old girl, is she going to have the resources to be gone that long? Yeah. Where's she going to go? And, you know, unfortunately, that's what both families were praying. They were hoping that that was the situation. Right. But law enforcement officials certainly didn't think so. Once again, the FBI was called in, and they this time they brought in profilers from the FBI headquarters in Quantico, Virginia. They were dispatched to this working-class suburb of Portland. And the Federal Bureau of Investigation instated a task force to search for the girls. Now, FBI spokeswoman Beth Ann Steele stated during a press interview, quote, there is a growing belief that these cases are related, and while there's a slight hope that they have run away, there is a growing belief that there was some kind of criminal activity involved. Mm-hmm. The two cases had so many frightening parallels, the police had to believe that they were probably linked at this point. I think the relationship between the two girls would, that's all you need for me, for them to be linked. Well, the FBI profilers and agency officials went on television issuing an advisory to the public, but this was without explaining why they were issuing an advisory. So they were telling the public to be on the lookout for someone who recently sold a car or vehicle, someone who shows signs of increasing drug or alcohol use, right? someone who appears to be tired from being up all night. Now, both Michelle Duffy and Lori Pons, everybody running a true crime podcast, (laughs) both Michelle Duffy and Lori Pons say they believe neither girl ran away, but they were also sure that neither would have have allowed someone to abduct them or be abducted by a stranger. Right. And this goes back to what you were saying. You know, you would start to wonder, was this a someone that they knew? Yeah. I, and I'm such a pessimist too. If I was one of the parents and I heard the other parents saying, well, maybe Ashley contacted her and they're, they're off in the woods somewhere living happily and nothing happened. I would be thinking in my head, get your head out of your ass. Mm -hmm. That's not a possibility. Well, I think that that comes from the public and it may have come from Ashley's school, that speculation, because some people there at the school knew a lot of the terrible stuff that was going on in Ashley's life, personal life outside of school. And, you know, it's not uncommon for when a child is having that difficult of a time being an, and being a victim right, to, to run away, to flee from a bad situation. Well, and you're also more likely if, if you're having that, how can I say this? Is it's negative attention, right? Mm-hmm, right. In the worst form. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't have a father figure or the father figure that she thought she had, she didn't have, and then she was molested by the other father figure. Mm-hmm. So she is more prone 
to having even just, let's say a, a stranger that says, Hey, let me take care of you. And if, if they're taking care of you part of the time, but there's still molestation or rape or whatever's happening, mm-hmm. this is an environment that she's been in. Mm-hmm. So she can survive in that environment. Right. So all I'm saying is she's more likely to maybe go with somebody and, um, but, but if, if that makes any sense, well, but we do know predators will prey upon children that have little to no support system. Well, right. But we also know in this community that people have heard about these allegations, right? So now if you have a predator there, they have their target. And again, then you go, well, if they're friends and Ashley has gone through all this, does she tell this predator, Hey, my friend went through some of this too. And now he preys on her as well. Right. The Pond family kept a low profile since Ashley's disappearance, but after the disappearance of Miranda, Ashley's mother, Lori Pond, appeared with Michelle Duffy on three television networks pleading for the return of their daughters. Uh, She stated she's very loud, referring to Ashley. She's very loud and outgoing, and she likes talking, so she would likely talk to you, Pond said in a statement directed to the abductor, should they be watching. Right. Where the girls lived is described as a 125-unit apartment complex, a cluster of neat, gray, two-story buildings with balconies uh, sheltered in a deep gully in a nest of forest, a a place with plenty of kids, and there were a lot of stay-at-home moms in this apartment complex. Parents in the area were obviously concerned, but they were uncertain what danger to watch out for. They were concerned, is this like a stranger lurking in the woods near the school bus stop, or was this someone that everyone knows? Well, they could have started by just, hey, walk your kid to the bus stop and designate a parent just to stay at the bus stop. You can start there. Well, where some of the family started, and this is, I don't find this to be surprising at all, families started moving out of the Newell Creek Village apartments. Yeah. Uh, one neighbor, this is Kim Hamlin, said, quote, there's a lot of young families here, a lot of children, and a lot of people are up at that hour of the morning getting kids off to school, going to work. She said, I keep thinking to myself it had to be someone they knew mm-hmm. because for a stranger to have come and violently abducted them, somebody would have seen something. Well, and that's all. That's also going to make it more difficult on investigators because if you have a bunch of people leaving the area, mm-hmm. they might just be leaving for the safety of their children. But investigators have to go. But why are they leaving? Are they? Are, yeah. Are they, should they be a know, suspect? Right. Is is there is their father that's moving them out of there? Is he Mister McFeely? Mm-hmm. Uh, Kim Hamlin added. I personally don't feel comfortable and safe for my child unless he's in the house under lock and key. So obviously at least one parent, many parents probably feeling the same way that you're feeling captain. Well, you know, there was a long time ago. I remember there was this family that was arrested because they had cages for their kids. They'd put their kids in cages. Mm Do you know what I'm talking about? Unfortunately it's happened more than once, but I, I, yeah, I but do it, remember a story of you're talking about one just a couple of years ago, I think. Yeah, but it's like, and I think one of the reasons that they had the cages was the parents were saying, 
is also for their safety. But it's like, if you listen to enough of these true crime shows, you might think about getting in a cage for your children. Like, just until <laughs> they're about 15, 16, right? I might... Like, if I listen to enough better? of these true crime shows, I might feel like getting a cage for myself. Yes. Well, I already bought you a cage for next Christmas. There's a line from an ACDC song where mm-hmm. Brian Johnson says, I feel safe in a cage in New York City. All right. <laughs> All right. You would have to ask him what exactly he means by that. Uh, next time I see him, I will. Okay. Regarding the investigation, there were two very obvious problems. That Wait, invest- hold on. I just want, for the record, do not send me an email stating that people shouldn't put kids in cages. You're very, aware of I'm that. I'm very well aware of that. I was <laughs> uh, making a joke. Look, I won't vouch for you on everything, but I'll vouch for you there. Right? right. Okay. So regarding this investigation, there are two very obvious problems that investigators faced. One, they had about 30 suspects. And we've seen several cases when you have a lot of suspects, you likely have a lot of nothing. You know, they, they can't, what Better I mean, than have a no lead at all though. Exactly. And, but what I mean by that is it's very difficult to investigate all 30 of these guys all at the same time. You know, all you can really do is investigate and work to thin the herd of suspects, so to speak. Now they had 28 suspects that lived in the same apartment complex as the two missing girls that could not be ruled out. And for then, you know, for, for months, authorities had no real evidence that a crime had even been committed because they had no eyewitnesses to such. All they have is two missing girls. Right. But that there's your crime. Just assume at that point. Well, they, they're, they're doing more than assuming they're investigating. Right. Right. It would take months, but investigators would whittle the suspect pool down Uh, No one knows for sure how many suspects of the 30 or so were cleared, only that the FBI agent in charge did announce publicly that they were down to, quote, about 10 or 20 suspects at one time in the investigation. One of those suspects was Ward Weaver III. Ward, as we know, was not only accused by one of the missing girls, Ashley Pond, of molestation, but Ward Weaver's home was near the two girls' bus stop. Weaver was a brutal man with a long history of violence and assaults against women. Okay, let's take a quick look at Ward Weaver's past criminal activity, shall we? On June 15th, 1986, Ward Weaver III, then 23 years old, was picked up outside of a bowling alley in Fairfield, California by the young daughters of a friend. After feuding with his girlfriend, or I'm sorry, after feuding with his wife, Weaver consumed six beers, six vodka screwdrivers, a little marijuana, and a gram of powdered speed. When the girls pulled the van over so Weaver could relieve himself, he opened the passenger door and struck the younger sister in the head with a chunk of concrete. Mm. He then grabbed the 16-year-old driver, put her in a headlock, and pulled her to the floor. Now, I'm a little clueless as to the rest of the details of this assault, but he was charged with this assault and he did serve uh, three years in prison for his actions on that night. Yeah. If you hit somebody with concrete, it should be attempted murder. Right. Right. In January of 1988, Ward Weaver, III was released from prison in California. And this is when he and his wife moved to Canby, Oregon, where they briefly operated a gift shop. So she stayed with him. Yes. Oh, great. 
1993, Maria Weaver files a restraining order against Ward Weaver and ends their marriage. Ward Weaver was getting involved in selling cocaine and methamphetamine at the time. This is according to police records and family interviews. Mm-hmm. Then in 1994, Weaver III, then 31 years of age, beat his new 18-year-old girlfriend, Christy Sloan, with a cast iron skillet in their Portland apartment. For this, Weaver was jailed, but the charges were dropped after Sloan told a prosecutor she was so afraid of Weaver that, I mean, she was too terrified to testify against him in court. Mm. See, now, now tell me if I'm right or wrong. Like I know now that if you if somebody calls the police back in the day, if they showed up and the girl was beat up or the guy was beat up, if nobody was going to press charges, they wouldn't take anybody away. Yes, and th- this varies by state to state, and it has changed throughout the years. Right, but that that was back then. But now you show up, and there's signs of physical abuse. They take somebody away. Mm-hmm. Period. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that the charges will be pressed, but I do know, and correct me if I'm wrong, that like in this case, right, we have this scenario where he beats this 18-year-old, mm-hmm. tells the prosecutor, hey, look, I'm too afraid to press charges, but now of days, they will still press charges, or they can. Yeah, but it's 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 it can still be a sticky situation. Because the way I see this going down is we have the prosecutor probably telling Christy Sloan, hey, we don't have really any evidence other than your testimony to hopefully get a conviction against this guy. So when you are a victim and you're very much afraid of this man and you hear, even with your testimony, we don't know if he's going to get any jail time or get a guilty verdict. Right. I could see how somebody could be very easily scared off of testifying against him, especially if you knew that you had the means to, to, to probably just get out of the situation somehow, you know, yeah. and, and maybe not make a lifetime enemy with somebody that you, I'm sure Christy Sloan, she knows firsthand yeah, but that just, he's a, he's a violent maniac. Right. But I wish there was things in place in the system where they would go, okay, here's the scenario. We have evidence of the markings. We took pictures of that. We took um, a statement from her. So even though she's not willing to testify, we can still press charges against him. And then he realizes it. And for the person, especially for the men that are beating these women, for them to understand that this this person, it doesn't matter what you say to your girlfriend that you beat up, it's not on her to press the charges. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? And they're going to press charges against you no matter what. And, right. And and so then the, then that person can't go, well, it's this person's fault, if that makes sense. No, I mean, it, it makes 100% sense. I mean, everybody, at the end of the day, everybody wants to be safe and everybody wants all of their loved ones and all of the good people out there to be safe as well. The problem is implementing a system that that allows for that. Um, and I know I'm being kind of vague there, but again, if it's, if the prosecutor believes that the jury or judge will see a situation as a, he said, she said, right. Then, I mean, that prosecutor is probably just being very upfront and honest with this victim and saying, unfortunately, we don't have a whole lot to work with here. 
Right. You know, now KATU news, this is what you were uh, referring to earlier. Oh, the interview. Yeah. So the news station KATU, they were actually on to Ward Weaver based on a tip that they received about, and this is a very vague tip, but go with me on this. They received a tip about a quote, bushy haired neighbor at the top of the hill. Now this vague description fit Weaver and the home that he lived in, as we said, was near the bus stop at the top of the hill. It wouldn't take long for KATU to arrange an interview with Ward Weaver. Now this is interesting captain for on so many different levels. Uh huh. Cheers. Um, a lot of times what we see when somebody is regarded by the public as a suspect, if news cameras, if the news team shows up and knocks on the door, what, what do we often see? Like you don't even see like the dude's face. Like you just see the door open no a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And you see like the darkness behind the door Yeah, and it's no comment or they just slam the door shut. Ward Weaver, the third, that's not the situation here. The news team shows up. They say, hey, look, you you live by what police believe is a crime scene, even though we have no evidence of, of the yeah. abduction. We don't have any great leads. You're on their suspect list. We got this tip about a bushy-haired man that lives at the top of the hill near, near the bus stop, and we think you're that guy. He, he's, like, very outgoing and, and willing to talk with, the news team, not so much so that he's like, Hey, come on into my house, you know, doors yeah. wide open, bring the cameras. And they so kind of like Mark Byers, right? Yeah. Yeah. In a sense, in a sense. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, you're actually spot on. I mean, very kind of outgoing and loves you know, to talk, mm-hmm. loves to talk. Um, he, I know somebody that likes to talk. <laughs> I know two people that, uh, <clears throat> go ahead. Okay. Um, so he invites the news team into his home with the cameras rolling and he gives a very upfront interview regarding the missing girls and regarding his status as a suspect in their case. Mm -hmm. And he says, look, you know, I, I've, I have a daughter of my own. She's the same age as the two missing girls. I've had both the girls over to my home at different times because they are all friends. They live near one another. Um, yes, I see the kids walking up to the school bus, to the bus stop in the mornings and, and arriving in the afternoon and walking home. And he walks them through several rooms, if not most of his actual household. And then they go outside and continue the interview out there. And he states reasons why he understands that he's a suspect, Mm. but he also gives many reasons why he is innocent and that they are probably looking at the wrong guy. Yeah. Which could come off multiple ways. Like this guy is trying to steer the narrative or this guy has nothing to hide. So why is he concerned? You know, he's just going to do anything that he can help the investigation out with. And the thing too, is he does not appear to be like nervous or fidgety during any portion of this interview. In fact, he seems to enjoy having the camera on him and he enjoys answering the question, the questions. I mean, he's smiling and laughing from time to time during the course of this lengthy interview. And when it breaks, when you break it down, you know, this is actually ends up only being a few minutes of TV 
on the news. But who knows how long they actually stayed at his home and spoke with him that day and how many questions he fielded. I heard it was three weeks. Three, <laughs> three weeks. He let him in there for three weeks. Now, no, but, you know, some people, I mean, again, you just wonder if he, he got off on this on, on, on some way. Mm-hmm. Well, he certainly seemed to enjoy the spotlight. Now, behind the scenes, when the cameras are off during this whole time, Ward Weaver is calling his half-brother. This is Rodney Weaver, uh-huh. who lives in Idaho. And during these phone calls, these lengthy phone calls, from time to time, he's complaining that, one, he believes his phone is tapped, that investigators are listening in on his conversations. He also believes that he's being followed by law enforcement and unmarked cars. Well, if you're a suspect, then that might be something that they do. And he has told his brother, his half-brother, that the investigators have been questioning him often and that they were relentless during these questioning periods, pressing him to confess to the abductions of both Ashley and Miranda. Right. Now, Ward Weaver insisted it was all a simple mistake. According to Weaver, the police were on to the wrong guy. The only reason the police zeroed in on Ward Weaver as a suspect, according to Ward, is one, the police believed he was capable of killing Ashley and Miranda simply because of the grisly crimes committed more than two decades ago by his father, the long-haul trucker, who murdered a young couple and buried the woman in the backyard. Right. And then number two, Ward Weaver highlighted that his close ties to Ashley, one of the missing girls, and he did portray himself. He says he, he was a fatherly figure to this girl. But as we know, the family members were reminding authorities, look, Ashley had accused him of sexual abuse before she vanished. Right. Weaver publicly proclaimed his innocence, even though he drew attention to himself with claims that he was the prime suspect and had failed a polygraph test. Right. So this clown is basically going around saying, Hey guys, I am the number one suspect. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm the whiz and nobody can beat me. Again, that goes back to what, what I referred to as him very obviously seeming to like the spotlight of, of standing in front of the news camera and, and get and being, uh, part of the interview process. Do we know if he actually took a polygraph test? Well, by his own admission publicly, he told people, Hey, I, I'm so much a suspect. They brought me in for questioning and hooked me up to a lie detector test. And I failed. Well, he's so <laughs> arrogant that he would be like, Oh, you want me to take a te- this polygraph test? Cool. I'll take one. Mm-hmm. You can't use it in court, but then he's going to go around. He's so braggadocious that he's going, Hey guys, I took one of their tests. And I failed it. Mm-hmm. What kind of piece of shit are you? Well, it's weird because you have to wonder, is that a shot at the, uh, that's got to be a shot at the authorities. You know, look, look, I'm their prime right. suspect. I failed a polygraph in it here. Here. I'm still here living my life in my house near the, where they believe the crime scene is. Well, on top, on top of that, he's also saying they're only looking at me for the stuff my father did. Let's not think about the stuff that I did. Mm-hmm. Let's not think about the crimes that I committed or the reasons why I've been in jail. They're only looking at me because of my father. And by pushing that blame onto somebody else, anytime that somebody does that where it's so obvious you shouldn't be pushing the blame, 
those people normally have some issues. So, okay, so we got to dive more into this tomorrow. And real quick, before we leave you today, if you want more True Crime Garage, don't forget about the Stitcher app. It's free. We have all of our catalog there, all of the old episodes. You can listen to them for free on the Stitcher app. We also have our fantastic show that me and the captain absolutely love, and we're so glad so many have joined in on our other show, Off the Record, available on Stitcher Premium. And people ask me all the time, what is Off the Record? Well, sometimes it's nonsense. We can't say. We can't say it's Off the Record. (laughs) Sometimes it's nonsense. But it's a lot of case updates. And the other thing that we've been doing lately is diving into little parts of big cases, mm-hmm. mainly unsolved cases. And we've done this week, we talk about the John Benet Ramsey case. And we're diving into this confession that was released by a known sex offender. So that's what we've been diving into this week. Check out Off the Record. And if you're looking for the link, it's pretty easy. Just go to our website, truecrimegarage.com, and click on the Off the Record link. It'll take you right there. All right, thanks, everybody, for joining us here in the garage today. We will see you again tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.